0: Now I'd like to introduce our guest minister today, Reverend Dr. Faith Harris. Reverend, Fer- Reverend Harris is an ordained Baptist minister, community organizer, and assistant professor for the School of Theology, Virginia Union University. Dr. Harris is also vice chair for Virginia Interfaith Center for Public Policy. Chair of Virginia Interfaith Power and Light and a member of the Governor's Environmental Justice Advisory Council. She is a member of the First Unitarian Universalist Church in Richmond, Virginia. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Harris. Good morning. Good morning. I'm very um, grateful to Dean Wonder who invited me here today and uh, made sure that I knew everything I needed to know and made sure that I was here on time. Um, <laughs> the only problem is that I forgot something at home, uh, or not at home, but in our uh, hotel room. And I was going to take a minute and ask my husband, if you could go get the blue bag, because it's really important for our conversation after. Um, <laughs> in the hotel room. And you you can you can leave that here. Right, yeah. um, sorry, it's so wonderful to have husbands to come to share, to come and share and help out uh, when we forget the things that are important. Um, <laughs> So, our sermon title today is uh, Not Just Us, and let me read a quote from uh, the book In Fleshing Freedom, Body, Race, and Being by M. Sean Copeland. The new imperial disorder rises arrogantly over the bones and, and the bodies of conquered children, women, and men. The bodies of the indigenous peoples were the first to be sacrificed eliminated, and contained. Then the body of the earth was raped and mastered. Finally, the bodies of yellow, brown, poor, white, and black children, women and men, were squeezed (coughs) through the winepress of new empire building. Globalization, the dominative process of empire, now cannibalizes the bodies, the labor, and creativity of global others. In sacrilegious anti-liturgy, the agents of empire hand over red, yellow, brown, white, black, and poor bodies to the tyranny of neoliberal capitalism, to the consuming forces of the market. End quote. Several weeks ago, CNN aired a seven-hour climate town hall with presidential hopefuls. Journalist David Roberts, a climate and energy reporter for Vox, suggested in his report about the event, the most hard-hitting question came not from the CNN moderator, but from the activist students, and academics in the audience. Guided questions from the audience made this event a climate change education for those who tuned in. While this may have been a wash for ratings, It was a much-needed educational experience for the public and for journalists alike. Roberts critiqued the CNN moderators for the way they framed the narrative on climate change and environmental justice. According to Roberts, they were stuck in a quagmire, in a dichotomy of the economy versus the environment, in the very framing of the questions was the suggestion that to mitigate the impact of greenhouse gases on the environment would be too expensive and will slow economic growth. They could only think of climate change in terms of monetary cost. Roberts argued that this kind of framing minimizes the reality of climate change and inflates the idea of inconvenience. It introduces the idea that Americans will be deprived and inconvenienced by a loss of the stuff they so love, gas-burning engines, single-use plastics, and more. It also minimizes the great gift of the town hall, which was to expose the American public to what is really at stake. What is necessary is the transition of the entire global energy infrastructure to a system that doesn't rely on burning fossil fuels and releasing greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. The economy versus the environment framing minimizes the dangerous reality of climate change. Half the world's species are set for eradication. Enormous swaths of the earth may be made uninhabitable for and by humans. Trillions of dollars drained from the economies of the world, an unimaginable loss of human life through mass starvation, wildfires, flooding due to sea level rise, and from massive storms in addition to diseases, civil unrest, and wars as a result of these conditions. This reindustrialization, he calls for, will require new technologies, new practices, new markets, new behaviors, fundamentally Transforming the way we live on Earth. Most of the world's nations are unprepared to protect their citizens, to recover from these severe climate events. People on the margins will experience the burden of these realities more severely, and it will take enormous efforts for their recovery, if at all. What Roberts Roberts left uh, unsaid on his call for a total transformation of the world's economies is the need for re-theologizing and rethinking of the ideologies which helped to create these conditions in the first place. Roberts is correct. Climate change, if understood rightly, is a complex set of problems with the potential for destroying and transforming the quality of all of our lives for the ill. We have marked we have marked time far too long in the dichotomy of environmental environment excuse me versus um, economy. Given the statistics that seventy percent of Americans self-identify as Christian, and are also among those most skeptical of climate change and climate science, the, pro, the project for transformation and renewal must have as its Uh, foundational goal, to somehow create a critical mass of Americans who will join the global movement to address the climate crisis. But it's it's not just about the science. It's about the religious imagination. You use, I think, have a leg up and a head start on this in our seven principles. The inherent worth and dignity of every person. Justice, equity, and compassion in human relations. Acceptance of one another and encouragement to spiritual growth in our congregations. A free and responsible search for truth and meaning. The right of conscience, conscience, and the use of the democratic process within our congregations and society at large. The goal of a world community with peace, liberty, and justice for all respect for the interdependent web of all existence, of which we are a part. We will never be able to effectively respond to the climate crisis to mitigate its impacts or realize the core aims and ideals found in our principles until we understand fully how we arrived at this condition at this time in our history. These principles, represent noble goals, worth our full commitment. They respond to the reality that we live in an unjust world filled with suffering, hatred, bias, and inequity. Yes, without a collective and total remaking of the religious imagination, social structures, and economic commitments in our nation and our world, they are merely words written for our benefit alone. They may express our concern for how badly we humans have messed things up and how important it is to do things differently, but we cannot do it alone. We will need allies to usher a world community with peace, liberty, and justice for all. There are ideological forces which support the corporatization of every facet of our lives. They are impediments to the goals of the reindustrialization and the mitigation of climate change. Put in religious terms, it is a collective and systemic idolatry defined as the love of luxury, the insatiable quest for wealth and power, blinding our will to act on climate. A recent study by the Yale University pro- uh, Program on Climate Communication found. That there has been some movement on the part of self identified Christians over the past eight years, with about 50% of the respondents who self identified as Christians expressing some desire to mitigate climate change or global warming, was the term they used. This is an increase over the original study, suggesting that framing the issue as a moral and religious value is very important. But to reach a critical mass of persons who do not only believe the science, but also care strongly enough to make the sacrifices necessary to reverse course, we will need, in the United States, the 70% self-identified Christians to join the movement. As a theology professor and interfaith environmental justice activist, I spend a lot of time trying to understand the impediments to reaching the critical mass of people around the world who we need to rise up and join the movement. At the risk of offending some, I, come, I have come to at least one conclusion. We must change the operational religious narrative present in our political. The world needs a new vision of the created order. The current vision we share in the West is a byproduct and direct result of the colonialist Christian project begun over 500 years ago. In his book, Acts, a theological commentary on the Bible, Willie James Jennings puts it this way. Out of the Christian modernist colonialist project, came the queen of theological analogies, a distorted doctrine of creation, and a set of Christian mistakes. This, these mistakes constitute what he calls a geographic wound on the entire project of Christian doctrine. The ge- geographic wound is a rendering of all life, the land, the animals, the trees, the soil, and the peoples as private property and possessions. It turns the land into commodity, inanimate, and mere dirt to be acted upon, not as actor. He writes, and, uh, and I quote, It began with theft. We must never forget that the land was being taken and the animals captured and killed at monstrous rates. The plants and the landscapes were being altered irreversibly over decade after decade and century after century. Peoples in the colonized world were being forced to think themselves in disoriented ways, away from the land, away from the animals, and into racial encasements, forced to isolate their bodies from the land, now turned to private property. Christians forced them to do this, and imagined this was the right thing to do, because this is how we, this is how they, saw them, things, things, isolated bodies, and privatized land, end quote. The view of privatized property is a result of an exclusive reading of the biblical texts, which came according to Jennings as a result of Christians moving from the drama of Gentile inclusion as second readers of the story of Israel to first readers. The Bible tells the story of the first reader, that is, the story of Israel. It often te- I often tell my students the biblical text is, uh, text is to read the biblical text by imagining themselves at the Chicago O'Hare Airport, reading over the shoulder of a rabbi, who is reading over the shoulder of his nearest ancestor, who was reading over the shoulder of their ancestor, and so on and so on. Rather than remain in the role of second reader, Christians moved to the position of first readers, dislodging Israel as first and claiming the story as their own. In the role of first readers, according to Jennings, the Bible took on an exclusive reading. Those who came to the new world believed they were the only people who rightly understood the world as God's creation. This exclusive view prevented them from recognizing alternate readings of the world from the perspective of the indigenous peoples they encountered. The newcomers were put off by the way these new world peoples talked about and related to the land, to the animals, and to the sky. The indigenous peoples spoke as if they had shared meaning with the land, with the animals, and the rivers were speaking to and through them. The peoples they encountered were joined to the land and joined to the ancestors through the land. I recently saw the new version of The Lion King. I'm sure many of you also, if you have children. It is a vision of the world from an indigenous perspective. In the circle of life, the animals, the stars, the sky, the river, all play a role in the maturation of Simba. He is surrounded and undergirded by the land and its inhabitants. The colonialists read these ways of reading the world as demonic confusion, culturally primitive, and animistic. The colonialists saw these new peoples as ignorant to the proper use of land as a resource and as tools. The colonialist Christians divided the world into two opposing views. Christians produced virtue while the indigenous tormented evil. They, as first and exclusive readers of the biblical text and of God's creation, believed their purpose was to eradicate primitive, animistic, and evil visions of the world by converting, enslaving, or or erasing new world peoples in the name of the church. Jose Jose Ocasta, Jesuit priest and missionary to Peru, although bemoaning the unnecessary cruelty of some Christian explorers and conquerors, wrote, if charity towards souls does not move us, well, then our thirst for gold at least lure us. And just the incredulity of the Israelites caused the salvation of, just as the incredulity of the Israelites caused the salvation of the Gentiles. so now the avarice of Christians is converted into the cause of the evangelicalization of the Indies. The wisdom of the eternal Lord who employs human vices as a means of spreading the Christian, uh, spreading the Christianity to regions of the world that otherwise offer no incentives to explorers, merchants or empires. Just as father, just as a father of an ugly daughter. Must offer a generous dowry in order to interest suitors. So too, God endowed the Indians with precious metals in order to lure Christians to an otherwise unattractive land. Acosta's argument offers more insight into the distorted doctrine and why we are stuck in a quagmire of economy over environment. The newcomers held a vision of natural life where the world waited to be occupied, manipulated, and reordered for the good. Colonialists saw the world as passive and divinely given gift to be possessed and used. Reading the world through this lens led to the tragic inability to see the world beyond possession. It spread throughout the uh, colonial world and remains in place even today. Today, we may not want to see ourselves in this story. This vision of the environment is operational, however, in our government, in our economy, and our national narrative. Land, wind, animal, plant, season, and sunlight do not resound to us or resound through us as they should. Instead, we have lost the ability to hear and see and sense the land we have lost our connection to the moral vision created by story, memory, and relationships to place and land. In the Bible, moral vision and formation is always related to place and the story's place holds for its people. The Bible suggests a moral universe woven into the geography of the earth. In the Bible, the earth speaks Simba learned this lesson as he saw his father's image in the river, in the sky, as he peered into them. He heard his father's voice as he listened deeply to the wind. Jennings argues that the earth itself is to speak to us and a moral vision is mediated by the earth itself. Paying attention to rock and wind and sky and moral vision meant to be Uh, coordinated by the earth itself. Listening to the earth, being attuned to the wind, to the plants, to the animals, we are to embody an active sense of reciprocity with animals, watching them and being watched by them. We need the world to speak to us for us to make sense of ourselves as creatures. The hermeneutics of possession leads to a geographic wound about who gets the land. The land is is presented as private property. The struggle over land is how we have socialized, have been socialized to read our world. Unrelenting territoriality becomes the most important question. The reading of the world by indigenous peoples is one antidote. The idea of land as possession and as private property, putting ourselves in the place um, of second reader instead of first. What then do we have to offer as a resolution to this problem of distortion of the doctrine of creation and disconnection with land? Jennings revisits the story of Jesus, of Jesus' incarnation. He offers a reading of Jesus as. Uh, in tuned with, to the earth and joined with us as creature, morally shaped and identified with the ground, with the tree, with the plant, with the animal, with the life, with uh, them and in them. He listened to the creation and creation spoke through him. As an indigenous person, Jesus shared a deep connection to the earth, to the land, to the animals, not as possessions, but possessed by it. Like other indigenous people who make sense of themselves through their joining to place, sky, mountain, rivers, trees, and animals, Jesus joined the creaturely life of human existence, incarnate with all life. use have the seventh principle, respect for the interdependent web of all existence, which we are a part, which may serve as a bridge to make allies with our brothers and our sisters, Christians, if we will embark on remaking of our world through new technologies, new behaviors, new practices, and new markets, also are needed. uh, Also is needed new theology and new vision of our world. We will have to undo the tragic and perverted modern colonialist project, which views the earth as inanimate, passive, immature to be used as a tool and extracted of its resources for personal wealth, for individual, individuals, corporations, and for governments. Becoming in tune with and listening to the moral vision which the earth itself offers in the same way as indigenous cultures and religions is the first step in a revised religious vision. In this nation, where 70% of the peoples claim a Christian identity, we cannot undo the harm resulting from the queen of maladies and the distorted doctrine of creation, where land is only seen as private possession and its purpose commodity, without re-theologizing of our moral universe. If we are to mitigate global warming and its effects, the relationship between the Earth and we, its creatures, must be refocused in the minds and hearts of our leaders, our corporations, our um, and the public. We have not won this argument through science and moral, uh, through science, technology, or even economic incentives, and we will not. As Willie Jennings demonstrates. The religious and moral imagination is a force which remade the entire world in its image over the course of 500 years. It remade the world into a distorted, perverse version of true reality. With a return to the role of of creature among creatures, humans as creature among creatures, we might muster the moral imagination and the ability to persuade the 70% for the sake of generations to come. Maybe so.